Section 5 of A Study of British Genius by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5 Childhood and Youth. The frequency of constitutional delicacy in infancy and childhood. Tendency of those who were weak in infancy to become robust later. The prevalence and precocity. University education. The frequency of prolonged residence abroad in early life. The first significant fact we encounter in studying the life histories of these eminent persons is the frequency with which they have shown marked constitutional delicacy and infancy in early life. A group of at least six. Joanna Bailey, Hobbes, Keats, Newton, Smart, Charles Wesley, with perhaps Locke Stern, were seven months children, or at all events notably premature at birth. It is a group of very varied and preeminent ability. Not including the above, who were necessarily weakly, at least fourteen are noted as having been very weak at birth and not expected to live, even given up as dead. In several cases they were, on account of supposed imminent death, baptized on the same day. Altogether, as many as 110 are mentioned as being extremely delicate during infancy or childhood. And the real number is certainly much greater, for this is a point which must frequently be unknown to the biographers or be ignored by them. In addition to these, we are told of 103 others, 10% of our eminent British persons, that their health was delicate throughout life, so that we may reasonably assume that in most cases their feeble constitutions were congenital. Thus, at the lowest estimate, 213 of the individuals on our list, a very large proportion of those for whom we have data on this question, were congenitally of notably feeble physical constitution. Professor A. H. Yoder encountered this fact in the course of his interesting study of the early life of a small group of men of genius, Pedagogical Seminary, October 1894, but failed to realise its significance. He put it aside as due to a desire on the part of the biographers to magnify the mental at the expense of the physical qualities of their subjects. There is no evidence whatever in support of this assumption. The significance of such early delicacy has, however, already been recognised by other writers. Thus, Sir W. G. Simpson, Journal of Mental Science, October 1893, points out that illness in children is followed by increased mental development. It may be noted that a tendency to die at birth is also noted among idiots, who often require resuscitation. Matthews, Duncan, Sterility in Women, page 61. Although it may fairly be assumed that this proportion at least of our eminent persons showed signs of physical inferiority at the beginning of life it must be assumed that in all cases such inferiority was marked throughout life the reverse of this is notably the case in many instances this is not indeed absolutely proved by longevity frequently noted in such cases for men of genius have sometimes lived to an advanced age though all their lives suffering from feeble health but there is a large group of cases probably much larger than actually appears in which the delicate infant develops into a youth or a man of quite exceptional physical health and vigour. Bruce the Traveller is a typical example. Very delicate in early life, he developed into a man of huge proportions, athletic power and iron constitution. Jeremy Bentham, very weak and delicate in childhood, became healthy and robust and lived to 84. Burke, weak and always ailing in early life, was tall and vigorous at 27. Constable, not expected to live at birth, became a strong and healthy boy. Dickens, a puny and sickly child, was full of strength and energy at the age of twelve. Galt, a delicate and sensitive child, developed Herculean proportions and energy. Hobbes, very weak in early life, went on gaining strength throughout life and died at eighty-four. 
Lord Stowell, with a very feeble constitution in early life, became robust and died in 91. It would be easy to multiply examples, though the early feebleness of the future man of robust constitution must often have been forgotten or ignored, and it is probable that this cause of development is not without significance. I have noted that in a very large number of cases, one or both parents died soon after the birth of their eminent child. One small but eminent group, including Blackstone, Chatterton, Cowley, Newton, Adam Smith and Swift, had lost their fathers before birth. We may trace here the frequent presence of inherited delicacy of constitution. The chief feature in the childhood of persons of eminent intellectual ability, brought out by the present data, is their precocity. This has indeed been emphasized by previous inquiries into the psychology of genius, but its prevalence is very clearly shown by the present investigation. It is certainly to be said that the definition of precocity requires a little more careful consideration than it sometimes receives at the hands of those who have inquired into it, and that we have carefully defined what we mean by precocity. It is its absence, rather than its presence, which ought to astonish us in men genius. Judging from the data before us, there are at least three courses open to a child who is destined eventually to display preeminent intellectual ability. He may, one, show extraordinary aptitude for acquiring the ordinary subjects of school study. He may, two, on the other hand, show only average, or even much less than average, aptitude for ordinary school studies, but be at the same time engrossed in following up his own preferred lines of study or thinking. He may, once more, three, be marked in early life solely by physical energy, by his activity in games or mischief, or even by his brutality the physical energy being sooner or later transformed into intellectual energy. It is those of the first group, those who display an extraordinary aptitude for ordinary school learning, who create most astonishment and are chiefly referred to as proving the precocity of genius. There can be no doubt whatever that even in the very highest genius such extraordinary aptitude at a very early age is not infrequently observed. It must also be said that it occurs in children who, after school or college life is over, or even earlier, display no independent intellectual energy whatever. It is probable that here we really have two classes of cases simulating uniformity. In one class we have an exquisitely organized and sensitive mental mechanism which assimilates whatever is presented to it, and with development ever seeks more complicated problems to grapple with. In the other class we merely have a sponge-like mental receptivity, without any corresponding degree of aptitude for intellectual organization, so that when the period of mental receptivity is over, no further development takes place. The second group, comprising those children who are most indifferent to ordinary school learning but absorbed in their own lines of thought, clearly contains a very large number of individuals destined to attain intellectual eminence. They by no means impressed people by their precocity. Scott, occupied in building up romances, was a dunce. Hume, the youthful thinker, was described by his mother as uncommon weak-minded. Yet the individuals of this group were often, in reality, far more precocious further advanced along the line of their future activities than the children of the first group. It is true that they may be divided into two classes, those who from the first had divined the line of their latter advance, and those who are only restlessly searching and exploring. But both alike really have entered into the path of their future progress. The third group, including those children who are only noted for their physical energy, is the smallest. In these cases, some powerful external impression, a severe illness, an emotional shock, Contact with some person of intellectual eminence serves to divert the physical energy into mental channels. In those fields of eminence in which moral qualities and force of character account for much, such as statementship and generalship, this course of development seems to be a favourable one, but in more purely intellectual fields it scarcely seems to lead very often to the finest results. 
On the whole, it is evident that precocity is not a very valuable or precise conception as applied to persons of intellectual eminence. The conception of physical precocity is fairly exact and definite. It indicates an earlier than average attainment of the ultimate growth of maturity, but we are by no means warranted in ascertaining that the man of intellectual ability reaches his full growth and maturity earlier than the average man. And even when, as a child, he is compared with other children, his marked superiority along certain lines may be more than balanced by his apparent inferiority among other lines. It is no doubt true that, in a vague use of the word, genius is very often indeed precocious, but it is evident that this statement is almost meaningless unless we use the word precocity in a carefully defined manner. It would be better if we asserted that genius is in a large number of cases mentally abnormal from the first, and if we were, were to seek to inquire precisely wherein the mental abnormalities consisted with these preliminary remarks, we may proceed to note the prevalence among British persons of genius of the undefined conditions commonly termed precocity. It is certainly very considerable, although we have to make allowance for ignorance in a large proportion of cases, and for neglect to mention the fact in many more cases, the national biographers note that 292 of the 1,030 eminent persons on our list may in one sense or another be termed precocious, and only 44 are mentioned as not precocious. Many of the latter belong to the second group, as defined above. Those who are already absorbed in their own lines of mental activity and are really just as precocious as the others. Thus, Cardinal Wiseman, as a boy, was dull and stupid, always reading and thinking. Byron showed no aptitude for schoolwork, but was absorbed in romance. And Landor, though not regarded as precocious, was already preparing for his future literary career. In a small but interesting group of cases, which must be mentioned separately, the mental development is first retarded and then accelerated. Thus, Chatterton, up to the age of six and a half, was said his mother little better than an absolute fool. Then he fell in love with the illuminated capitals of an old folio, at seven was remarkable for brightness, and at ten was writing poems. Goldsmith again was a stupid child, but before he could write legibly, he was fond of poetry and rhyming. And a little later, he is regarded as a clever boy, while Fanny Birdie did not know her letters at eight, but at ten was writing stories and poems. Probably the greatest prodigies of infinite precocity among these eminent persons were Cowley, Sir W. R. Hamilton, Wren, and Thomas Young. Three of these, it will be seen, being men of the first order of genius. Jerry Barry and Thurwall were also notable prodigies, and it will be easy to name a large number of others whose useful proficiency in learning was of extremely unusual character. While, however, this is undoubtedly the case, it scarcely appears that any actual achievement of note date from early youth. It is only in mathematics, and to some extent in poetry, that originality may be attained at an early age, but even then it is very rare. Newton and Keats are examples and is not notable until adolescence is completed. The very marked prevalence of an early bent towards those lines of achievement in which success is eventually to be won is indicated by the fact that in those fields in which such bent is most easily perceived it is most frequently found. It is marked among the musicians, and would doubtless be still more evident if it were not that our knowledge concerning British composers is very incomplete. It is specially notable that in the case of artists, is reported of not less than 40 out of 64 that in art they were precocious, only four noted as not being specially precocious. A certain proportion of eminent persons on our list have followed the third course of early development as defined above. That is to say, they have been merely noted for physical energy and youth. Sir Joseph Banks was very fond of play till 14, till he was suddenly struck by the beauty of Elaine. 
Isaac Barrow was chiefly noted for fighting at school. Chalmers was full of physical activity, but his intellect awoke late. Thomas Cromwell was a ruffian in youth. Thurlow, even at college, was idle and insubordinate. Murchison was a mischievous boy, full of animal spirits, and was not interested in science till the age of thirty-two. Perkins was reckless and drunken till his conversion. It can scarcely be said that any of these remarkable men, not even Barrow, achieved very great original distinction in purely intellectual fields. In order to go far, it is evidently desirable to start early. The influence of education on men of genius is an interesting subject for investigation. It is, however, best studied by considering in detail the history of individual cases. Generalized statements cannot be expected to throw much light on it. I have made no exact notes concerning the school education of the eminent persons at present under consideration. It is evident that, as a rule, they received the ordinary school education of children of their class, and very few were, on account of poverty or social class, shut out from school education. A small but notable proportion were educated at home, being debarred from school life by feeble health. A few also, like J.S. Mill, were specially educated by an intellectual father or mother. The fact of university education has been very carefully noted by the national biographers, and it is possible to form a fairly exact notion of the proportion of eminent men who have enjoyed this advantage. This proportion is decidedly large. The majority, 53%, have in fact been at some university. Oxford stands easily at the head. 41% of those who have had a university education received it at Oxford, and only 33% at Cambridge. An interesting point is observed here. The respective influence of Oxford and Cambridge are due to geographical considerations. There is a kind of educational watershed between Oxford and Cambridge, running north and south. And so place that Northamptonshire is on the eastern side. Cambridge drains the east coast, including the important East Anglican district and the greater part of Yorkshire, while Oxford drains the whole of the rest of England as well as Wales. This at once accounts both for the greater number of eminent men who have been at Oxford and for the special characteristics of the two universities. Due to the districts that have fed them, the more literary character of Oxford, the more scientific character of Cambridge. The Scotch universities are responsible for 14% of our eminent men. Trinity College, Dublin, shows 5%. The remaining 4% have studied at one or more foreign universities. Paris, the Sorbonne, stands at the head of the foreign universities, having attracted as many English students as all the other European universities put together. This is doubtless mainly due to the fact that Paris was the unquestioned intellectual centre of Europe throughout the long period of the Middle Ages, though the intimate relations between England and France may also have had their influence. With the revival of learning, Italian universities became attractive, and Padua long retained its pre-eminence as a centre of medical study. During the 17th century, the Dutch universities, Leiden and Utrecht, began to attract English students, and continued to do so to some extent throughout the greater part of the 18th century. It was not until the 19th century that English students sought out the German universities. Douay might perhaps have been included in the list as a chief substitute for university education for the eminent English Catholics who have appeared since the Reformation. Stated somewhat more precisely, it may be said that of our 975 eminent men, 217 were at Oxford, 232 if we include those who had also been at some other university, 177 were at Cambridge, 191 if we include those who had also been elsewhere, 76 came from Scotch universities, Edinburgh 28, Glasgow 21, St Andrews 16, Aberdeen 11. From Trinity College, Dublin, have come 27 men, 23, or 47 we include those who had previously been at some British university, have been to one or more foreign universities. 
Paris, 23. Leiden, 9. Padua, 6. Utrecht, 3. Louvain, 3. Gottingen, 2. Bonn, 2. Heidelberg, 2, etc. It may be interesting to compare these results with those obtained by Mr. Maclean in his study of 19th century British men of ability. He found that among some 3,000 eminent men, 1,132 or 37% are recorded as having had an English, Scotch or Irish university education. Of these 1,132, 37% were at Oxford, 33% at Cambridge, 21% at Scotch universities, 7% at Dublin, and the small remainder were scattered among various modern institutions. It will be seen that university education plays a comparatively small part in this group. This may be in part due to the lower standard of eminence, but it may also be due to the wide dissemination of the sources of knowledge. In no previous century would so encyclopedic a thinker as Herbert Spencer have been able to ignore absolutely the advantages of university centres. In America, also, as might be expected, a college education has not been received by the majority of able men. Thus, Professor E. Dexter, high-grade men in college net, Popular Science Monthly, March 1903, shows that not more than 3,237 of the 8,602 eminent Americans of the 19th century, or 37%, exactly the same proportion as Mr. McLean found in Great Britain, are college graduates. Those who reach a higher grade of scholarship are, however, more likely to become eminent than those of low grade. While the fact of university education is easily ascertained, it is less easy to define its precise significance. The majority of our men of pre-eminent intellectual ability have been at a university, but it would be surprising were it otherwise, considering the majority of these men belong to the class which, in ordinary course, receives a university education. It would be more to the point if we knew exactly what influence the universities had exerted, but on this our present investigation throws little light. In a considerable number of cases, at least, the university exerted no favourable influence whatever, the eminent man subsequently declaring that the years he spent there were the most unprofitable of his life. This was so even in the case of Gibbon, whose residence at Oxford might have been supposed to be very beneficial, for at the age of fourteen he had already been drawn toward the subject of his life task. In a large number of cases again, the eminent man left the university without a degree, and in not a few cases he was expelled. It is evident, however, on the whole, that a university life had not been unfavourable to the development of intellectual ability, and that while our eminent men do not appear to have been usually subjected to any severe educational discipline, they have been in a good position to enjoy the best educational advantages of their land and time. Professor Sully, in a study of the influence of educational genius, with special reference to men and women of letters, The Education of Genius, English Illustrated Magazine, January 1891, had already reached conclusions in harmony with those years set forth. It cannot be said that the boys who afterwards proved themselves to have been the most highly gifted shone with much luster at school, or found themselves in happy harmony with their school environment. The record of the doings of genius at college is not greatly different. No doubt a number of the ablest men have won university distinctions. In a few cases, indeed, a thoroughly original man has carried everything before him. At the same time, it may safely be said that a very small proportion of the men of genius who have visited our universities have presaged thereafter fame by high academic distinction. Thus, it has been computed that, though Cambridge has been rich in poets, only four appear in her honours lists. See article on senior wranglers, Cornhill Magazine, volume 45, page 225. 
In many cases, we have two clear signs of a disposition to relative against discipline and routine of college life. We find further that more than one distinguished man have expressed in later life their low esteem of university training. The conclusion that seems to be forced on us by the study of the lives of men of letters is that they owe a remarkably small proportion of their learning to the established machinery of instruction. If this is not a very decisive result to reach, there is another less recognised method of educational development which occurs so frequently, though I am disposed to attach very decided significance to it. I refer to residence in a foreign country during early life. The eminent persons under consideration have indeed spent a very large proportion of their whole lives abroad, whether from inclination, duty, or necessity, persecution, or exile, and it might be interesting to ascertain the average period of life spent by a British man of genius in his own country. I have not attempted to do this, but I have invariably noted the cases in which a lengthened stay abroad has occurred during the formative years of childhood or youth. I have seldom knowingly included any period of less than a year. In a few cases I have included lengthened stays abroad which were made about the age of thirty. But in these cases, those periods of foreign residence exerted an unquestionable formative influence. I have included soldiers and sailors altogether, as well as explorers, for in their case absence from England at a very early age has been an almost invariable and invariable incident in their lives, and has not always been of a kind of conductive to intellectual development. Nor have I included the very numerous cases which transference from one part of the British Islands to another has sufficed to exert a stimulating influence of the greatest importance. With these exemptions we find that as many as 371 of the eminent persons on our list, nearly as large a proportion has received a university education during early life, and all but a few cases before the age of 30 have spent abroad periods which range from about a year, and in very many cases have extended over seven years, up to extreme cases like that of Caxton, who went to Rooters in early life and stayed there for 30 years, or Buchanan, who went to France at the age of 14 and was abroad for nearly 40 years. It is natural that France should be the country most frequently mentioned as the place of residence, but France is closely followed by other countries, and a familiarity with many lands, including even very remote and scarcely accessible countries, is often indicated. It may further be noted that this tendency to an association between high intellectual ability and early familiarity with foreign lands is by no means a comparatively recent tendency. It exists from the first, the earliest personages on our list. St. Patrick was kidnapped in Scotland at the age of 16 and conveyed over to Ireland. It seems indeed that in the 19th century the tendency became less marked, yielding to the average modern Englishman's hasty and unprofitable method of travelling. In any case, however, it is evident that there has been a very marked tendency among the men of pre-eminent ability to familiarise themselves in the most serious spirit with every aspect of nature and life. It is equally marked among the men of every group, among poets and statesmen, artists and divines. It is not less marked in the case of men of science from the days of Ray onwards. If it had not been for the five years under the Beagle, we should scarcely have had a Darwin, and Lyell's work was avowedly founded on his constant foreign tours. In a notable number of cases, this element comes in at the earliest period of life, the eminent person having been born abroad and spent his childhood there. The presence of so large a number of our eminent men at a university may be in considerable measure merely by accident of their social position. The persistence with which men of the first order of intellect have sought out and studied unfamiliar aspects of life and nature, or have profited by such aspects which presented by circumstances, indicates a more active and personal factor in the evolution of genius. End of chapter 5